Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So this series, as you see by the, the video that plays right before I come up, called The People of God, uh, and there's a reason for that right at the heart of Peter's message is this text right here, which we're working our way to. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So because we have been shown mercy, that is you plural, by the way, because he's speaking of the church, that will be uh, explained in the coming weeks. But because of it, you have a distinct character, a distinct identity, and it's so comprehensive that it replaces and overpowers all other normal or natural identities. So that if you were to lose any other thing that gives you an identity, whether it, was a nas- whether it was national or racial or social or relational or cultural, any of those connections or, or markers, if you will, if you were to lose any of them, you wouldn't lose your core identity, you wouldn't lose your core character, you wouldn't lose your core value, and you wouldn't lose your core mission. None of that would change. So Peter is writing to Christians who are experiencing the loss of some or all of these. Some of these deep and intimate relationships, the kind of things that you wouldn't even, that you would really struggle to know who you were if you were to lose them. Because they mark our identity. And so Peter tells them, as we've learned, Listen, you're in exile. You're actually in exile wherever you are. You're never fully at home anywhere. You never fully fit in anywhere. And so he tries to help them see that salvation, the salvation that's been given to them by God, uh, was absolutely life-altering. So Peter describes it, as we've seen, as a new birth, a new life, a new hope, a new future, a new community, a new mission, and a new purpose. That's so overwhelming, that's so radical, that you can function anywhere with the loss of anything. And so what Peter will do in this book is he'll say, are you, are you having issues at home because you're a Christian? Are you having issues at work because you're a Christian? Are you having issues with the uh, governing authorities because you're a Christian? Are you having uh, issues with society because you're a Christian? Let me show you how I want you to, let me show you how I want you to handle that. None of those are ultimate losses. Things that truly we wouldn't know how to live without. So for instance, I'll give you one of them. One of them is... uh, what he says to wives in that culture. 
Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see you respectful and pure conduct. Now listen, if you're in that culture and you became a Christian and you were a woman and you were married to a man who had any, by the way, anything that happened in their homes had social implications because they worshiped all these gods and they had all these religious festivals you had to be a part of, all these religious things. Christians would get blamed for bad things that happened in the community because they were worshiping a god other than the one society you know, approved of. When you, be, when you were a woman who didn't have a voice in that culture and you became a Christian and you're married to a man who is known in the society as, with a certain reputation, and now my wife doesn't even believe in the same God that I do? And you're, and you're that woman and you're like, I'm stuck between, who am I? Am I his husband? Am I your child, God? How do I relate to society? This would have all kinds of identity implications. Ones that happen in the home and ones that would happen outside the home. And Peter, you know, obviously they didn't have a voice. If you were a woman, if you were a wife in, in that culture, you believed what your husband believed. And you never, you never imagined that you would teach your husband anything. They didn't have a voice. So Peter looks at this particular Christian and says, ah, so you're in a social structure where you don't have a voice. Let me tell you what I want you to do. Win them without words. Your mission is more important than the social structure. Don't try to change the social structure. Win them without words. And if you suffer for that, so be it. Because that's what we're here for. That's your mission. This is a profound thing to say. We're going to look at it in more detail because it has profound implications for all of us. And it's a microcosm, really, of what Peter's trying to say throughout the whole book. You socially constricted somehow, losing your voice? You haven't lost the power to be a testimony. Let it be seen in your respectful and pure conduct. So radical is this new existence, this new hope that you have, that if you're rejected, mistreated, cheated, mocked, shamed, ostracized, injured, or tortured, you can rejoice. You say, really? Because I can't even imagine that. When I hear suffer, I recoil. I don't rejoice. How do you apply this to what we've been saying? Because we're struggling, I think, to sort of imagine a Christianity without religious freedom and rights, which we're losing slowly. And I've been arguing that to a large degree, America has shaped our understanding of Christianity and it's affected our mission 
And it can be detrimental, as Peter's going to show us, to our faith. Peter can't imagine Christianity without opposition. He can't imagine Christianity without suffering. And I know by the emails I've been getting, you're struggling to imagine it as well. To the degree that you're not sure what to do with 1 Peter. We're so sort of removed from the thinking. That it's rather easy to dismiss his premise and say 1 Peter doesn't apply to me. That would be a big mistake. As we, as our voice gets muffled more and more, and our lifestyle becomes more and more offensive to culture, there will be far more opposition. One commentator understands this. She writes, when Western Christians may not be able to relate to the theme of suffering in 1 Peter because many of us haven't lived in a social situation similar to his, read, his readers. But from that time until this, the church has always been persecuted in some part of the world and some believer, believers live with the daily threat of persecution for the faith and to them, 1 Peter is a precious letter of pastoral encouragement from the heart of an apostle. So as we become more marginalized as Christians and frankly hated, we're going to need to be prepared, First Peter's the manual, for where we are right now in our culture and society. Uh, Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey wrote a book in the early 90s. It was one of those true paradigm shift kind of books uh, called Pain, the Gift nobody wants. I've, I've referenced it to you before. Dr. Paul Brand used to work in India and spent half of his medical career um, dealing with lepers. Then he came to the United States, spent sort of the second half of his medical career here. This is what he writes 12 pages into the book. When I got to the United States, a nation whose war for independence was fought in part to guarantee a right to the pursuit of happiness, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. The Indians I worked with who expected suffering and learned not to fear it. And then I had, on the other hand, Americans who suffered less but feared it more. I'm convinced that the attitude we cultivate in advance may well determine how suffering will affect us when it does strike. He wrote that book for this very purpose, to prepare. You remember Carly Simon's book in, or a song in 74? I uh, haven't got time for the pain. That's Americans. I haven't got room for the pain, she said. I haven't the need for pain. Peter disagrees. Peter wants to change our frame, framework and our understanding of how to deal with social, cultural, political marital, vocational, 
relational opposition. And the baseline, it's like it's, it's, it's the beat. Um, you, know, it's, uh, you know, my son plays the drums. It's the baseline of, or, your, or the bass guitar, under the, in the, in Peter. It's just boom, 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 to the whole other part of the song of his message. Is Christ suffered six times. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And Peter is essentially saying, the baseline of this book is the one you worship, the one who has secured salvation for you, suffered but he ended up victorious. Opposition doesn't crush God's plan of redemption. He ended up victorious. Salvation was accomplished. Suffering is not the end. It's actually, Peter says, the path to glory in chapter one. We're talking, listen, the worst injustice in the world to the best person in the world, accomplish the most incredible and greatest feat in the world. Suffering is not the end of the world. And because you're associated with him, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You're not immune. You were saved by a sufferer. You follow a sufferer. He didn't just accomplish it through suffering. He blazed a trail that if you're going to follow him, you will too. There's simply no getting around it. So for Peter, our association with Jesus makes suffering normal. Jesus' Jesus suffering normalizes this kind of persecution. So Peter says in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, remember, um, don't consider it strange, beloved. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. This shouldn't be that shocking. This is what Peter's saying. It's actually strange if you never experience it. Like if the whole world is just all for your Christian life, that would be really strange to Peter. Actually rejoice insofar as you get to share in his sufferings. Overwhelming text. Now, as Americans, our modern sensibilities consider suffering very abnormal. Uh, Something to be avoided, if at all possible. And if you can't avoid it, well, just get through it as fast as you can so you can get to normalcy, because that's normal. 
That's how we pretty much view pain. But suffering for and suffering with Christ is normal, according to Peter. In a sense, we are experiencing here in America, for the most part, the abnormal Christian life. A strange kind of Christianity. And it reveals itself in kind of a weak faith. This is hard to say. I want you to know that everything I say from here on out, the rest of this talk, I'm talking to myself. First Peter chapter four tells the church that's suffering this opposition to view it as judgment that has come upon the church. What kind of judgment? Well, it's this fiery test that will prove the genuineness of your faith when it comes to the door. One of these days, God's gonna judge the world, he says, but he's also gonna judge the church to see who in it isn't the real deal. And it begins with the church. He wants to know who's real in here first, then he will go judge the world. And that's why Peter makes this incredibly difficult concept for us to grasp, statement like, it is with great difficulty that the righteous are saved. What? Faith seems pretty easy to me. Just walk down an aisle, sign a card, get a little wet in a baptismal, pop into church every now and then, read your Bible. How hard is it? Ah, for most people around the world, they know nothing of an easy faith like that. And so what happens is Christianity just becomes something else nice that we have in our life because heaven sounds really good when this great life is over. And we go from great to great. Isn't that great? And so what it does is it kind of creates a neurotic kind of spiritual life where there's always something with us competing with Christ's place and primacy in our life. I don't be offended by this. It's a caricature, but I sound like it sometimes. Oh, I'm really struggling. Oh, I'm really struggling with my faith. I, I like this boy, and that could be a guy speaking too. I like this girl, and she's not a Christian, but we're really tight, and I love her, and I think I'm going to marry him. I'm really struggling. That's struggling for us. I'm really struggling to forgive this person who hurt my feelings. I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling to be a servant to my spouse. I sound like a girl, but I don't mean to sound like that. I sound like a girl. Listen, <laughs> the reason I sound like a girl, I don't mean to be offensive to girls. That's how I sound to myself. Okay? Really struggling with anger right now. Really struggling with being a giver. I'm really struggling with serving. Just really struggling. That's the neurotic spiritual life here where our struggles are, are ridiculous for the most part. 
Suffering cures all those. Suffering would cure all those problems for you because if you weren't really real, you'd bail anyway. Once the suffering started, you'd go, oh, that's not for me anyway. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't be so neurotic. You wouldn't be so torn about your faith. Oh, I really want both because suffering doesn't give you that option. It's either you're in or you're out. You're on board or you're not. That's, I went through painstaking this week, had one of the best times this week. I literally painstakingly went through all of 1 Peter with this Bible right here and, and highlighted all of the benefits that come to a believer in their faith from suffering. And I made a list. There's 11 you might be able to sneak in a couple more. But. First one is, we're going to look at this in a minute, is it proves the genuineness of your faith. 1-7. It leads to glory. 1-8 and 9. It creates opportunity to share faith. Sort of like the wife in chapter 3. It earns God's favor. Most of us think when God brings opposition to our life, that we're not in a favorable position. Not according to Peter. It silences and shames persecutors and critics when you endure suffering and live righteously through it. It brings God's blessing. This is another thing. In America, you're blessed if you get good stuff. For Peter, you're blessed if you get opposition. That's a blessing because you just you identified with Christ who shared in his suffering. Shared in his suffering. It identifies believers with Christ who suffered. That's what we that's the text we just read. You're called to it like everybody else, like he was. If you're gonna follow him. It eliminates sin. This is an incredible text. I don't have time to go through it right now. We might a little bit later, four, one to three. Where because Christ suffered. You likewise are armed with a kind of ability to say no to the petty sins because you don't have time for petty sins when the, when, when the heat is lit up under your rear end. You don't have time to go, well, I don't know if I want to do, obey God today or not. That kind of stuff doesn't happen. So it eliminates it. It drives believers to God in chapter four, verse 19, after he says the righteous it's difficult for them to be saved because it hurts. And so what does it do? It literally, it forces you, the text says, to entrust your soul to your creator. It connects believers to other believers who suffer. Peter says in chapter five, right toward the end of the book, he says, oh, by the way, one more thing. When you're hurting, when you have loss in your life because of your faith, remember there's a brotherhood of people around the world that you can identify with who are in the same boat and worse. And then 11, you got to read verse 10, two verses to the end of the chapter. It ensures God's future restoring grace because Peter says, after you have suffered a while, God's going to give you a little grace and he's going to completely restore and strengthen and give you everything you lost. 
why Peter says in chapter 3, verse 17, sometimes God wills opposition to the church because he cannot do to faith without suffering what only suffering can do. It almost gives you the impression, this was really hard for me to choke down and, and got me contemplative. Without suffering, is my faith at a disadvantage? This is the reason we struggle to live the Christian life here. Because we really got two options. And we can have a little bit of both anytime we want. But you can't under pressure. Options go away. This is the same guy who, you know, by the way, the theologian writing this is the same guy who looked at Jesus and said, I'm going to do everything I can to keep you from going to a cross. The last thing I want to happen to you is for you to have pain, for you to hurt, for you to be killed. This is a guy who says, I've changed my tune on that. I now see the absolute necessity, inevitability of suffering. Doing some reading, I told you, on Christians who are suffering around the world. And I came across... uh, this thing in China is just interests me. There's a lot of information out on it. Um, and I came across this pastor, a video of this pastor, um, just telling a little bit of his story. I'm sitting in my office. The first time I saw it, I've seen it three times in my office. The first time I had to stop it because literally three lines in I couldn't handle it I broke down I knew where he was going with his first image and I just couldn't handle it I just want you to watch it it's hard for myself to imagine my past life I called myself a red kid. I used to be a communist, atheist, Marxist. My conversion story can properly sum up in one verse. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Even though your sin is as red as scarlet, I will make it as white as snow. That color, red, has a double meaning for me personally. My life used to be dominated by that red authority communist regime. The climate for Christians in China is uh, like going through a bitter winter. The government won't install facial recognition cameras in our sanctuary. Of course, we refuse that unreasonable demand. Then they install cameras at the lobby of our church building. 
that camera can gather the private data of our church members, and then they can target our church members to intimidate them. They will intimidate them with their jobs, their housings, and their children's education to prevent them from going to church. In 2018, this new regulation on religious affairs took effect. Several prominent house churches in China were shut down. Hundreds of policemen raided our church, smashed our building, put the pastors on the civilians, and shut down the church. The level of persecution in China is at its worst level since the Cultural Revolution in 1960s and 70s. We are so united together like never before. We have a revival in our church. A lot of our brothers and sisters are so encouraged by this experience, even in the severe persecution. After my church was shut down by the government, the first sermon I preached is from uh, Revelation chapter 3, um, verses 7 and 8. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Even though the persecution is intensifying, there are a lot of brothers and sisters still be very faithful, very brave to testify the glory of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in there and heard that sermon? I put before you an open door no one can shut. I don't care if they shut it. Politically, I don't care if they shut it. I don't care how they shut it. They're experiencing revival. China is one of the fastest growing Christians. Or it's the fastest growing religion in China. 100 million people worshiping in unregistered house churches. I came across this guy, Brent Fulton, who's president of China Source. It's an international organization. Uh, that provides sort of resource and updates on faith in, in China. He's authored a book I just recently purchased. I've only glanced at so far. China's Urban Christians, A Light That Cannot Be Hidden is the name of it. Uh, since Xi Jinping has come into office sometime in leadership in 2013, but in 2018 he's really turned up to heat. They're calling it the second cultural uh, revolution because it's akin to Mao uh, uh, Zehan's uh, sort of chaotic rule and oppression against Christians. This is what Brent, who's very familiar with the Chinese church, tells us as Americans we ought to be thinking about. Christians outside China need to stop viewing Chinese Christians as persecuted. 
This is amazing. It puts too much focus on politics because that narrative downplays how dynamic the church is thriving in that culture. Again, one of the fastest growing movements, Christianity. America, by the way, is 30. It's dropping. We're described by nuns. Nothing. Christianity is growing in Asia. It's growing in Africa, where all the persecution is the greatest. He says in there, his church is having revival. Have you ever prayed for America to have revival? Or the church to have revival? You think it can happen without persecution? Not going to happen. The church is going to have to get some heat, and then God will do some work, because that's where it's happening around the rest of the world. He says this, rooted in Western assumptions about the relationship between church and state, all of these sort of religious and freedom rights groups that are really saddened for the church in China, he says, that's a problem because it views the church's problem as primarily political. It paints believers as innocent victims, or in the case of those who dare to speak out against the regime, tragic heroes. That doesn't even begin to tell the whole story, he writes. Instead of focusing solely on the persecution itself, we join Chinese Christians in their profound recognition of how God has met them in suffering. The example of grace under oppression speaks volumes to believers around the world who suffer in various ways. We recognize that a church that has experienced some of the most extraordinary growth in history may actually have something to say to believers in countries where church attendance is declining. There's an opportunity to learn together how the church can grow in inhospitable, inhospitable environments. Instead of hoping for more Christian institutions to transform the culture, we see how Christians in this new narrative are personally transformed as they become vulnerable to one another and to the Holy Spirit in times of weakness. Like believers in Wuhan, you know, Wuhan, where the whole COVID thing started, there's churches in there. There's pastors trying to pastor people. There's pastors and churches in there trying to win people to Christ and care for the sick. Government came in there and shut everything down, raided the house churches, beat them, took things, shut them down. But because of COVID, they've gone out of there and they won't go back in because that's where COVID was. And so the church is now sneaking out again and caring for all the people in the community. It's been great for them. It's an opportunity for them. I've opened a door for you. No one can shut. So like believers in Wuhan at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, they experienced the power of Christ working through them to bring about change in ways that don't require access to mass media or, my favorite line, the levers of political power. The church has never needed political leverage to accomplish God's purposes. It's never needed it.
talk more about that later. So it makes you ask, what sort of spiritual life can you really have without suffering? This is what I'm asking myself. You're getting a lot of just posing myself certain questions. My goodness, can genuine faith even exist without it? Last week, we asked the question, how would a real Christian vote? Peter says, I got a better test for you. Let me put a little heat under your behind, and I'll tell you whether you're genuine or not. There's a lot of people who are going to vote red this year who wouldn't survive in persecution. Your genuineness won't be determined by your easy vote. When you come to Christ, Peter says, you not only get a living hope, you get suffering with the package. It's part of the package. You're identified with a sufferer, and you walk the path of the sufferer. So, let's look at something real quick. He says, we looked at three verses five, but I want to just end with five here. He talks about God's power. Uh, We are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter's uh, uh, talking about our hope that we have that cannot be lost. And you have it through faith. Faith is the key. It's what connects you to this great future, Peter keeps describing. Don't worry about anything you've lost. You have a great hope and future, he's saying. And your faith connects you to that. We said in Hebrews multiple times when we were in that series, faith is the most valuable thing you possess Because it connects you to a certain future, past all of the mess here. And so verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. And of course, Peter says, it is. You have been grieved by various trials. Even if you have to suffer, Pete says. I don't know, I called him Pete. I don't know that I've ever done that. (laughs) Lose anything but your faith, Peter says. Even if a little heat comes, you rejoice because you know you're not going to let go of that ultimate. Lose anything but your faith. That's what Peter's writing. Whatever you do, don't abandon your faith because then you'll really end up with nothing. And so the question underlying Peter's message is, can your faith survive a little heat? Can you handle it and still keep your wits about you? Can you handle it and still be loving? Can you handle it? Without denying God? These are great questions. Made me wonder. How can you not help but ask, would my faith survive persecution? It's answered really quickly when suffering comes. These are hard questions we wrestle with here. You don't wrestle with them in the other places. They're answered very quickly. And so Peter says, here's why opposition comes to you and why I will it. God says, I will opposition to you. It's because it tests the genuineness of your faith. 
which is more precious than gold, because gold perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a remarkable image, almost more than we can compute. The genuineness of our faith. How important it is, do you think it is, for you to know the genuineness of your faith? It's the most important possession you have. Wouldn't you like to know it's really real? And what would happen to your spiritual life if you found out it was really real? Oh my. In America, we doubt our salvation every other day. We're like, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I believe anymore. I don't know. Put a little heat under your behind, you'll know in two seconds. Uh, you know, I've got sin in my life. I keep making bad choices, and I, I don't know if God still loves me. Put a little heat under you. All those sins go away. You don't have time for them. That's where we talk about neurotic. Because we don't know if our faith is genuine. And Peter's saying, your faith is far more valuable than gold, which perishes. Take the most precious thing you can think of, and it's going to go away. But your faith is like gold. It's better than gold because it won't perish ultimately. But it's like gold in that I can put heat on it. And when you put heat on gold, it gets purified. When you put heat on faith, it gets purified. And here's what Peter wants to communicate. If your faith is real, it's indestructible. Your faith, Peter says, is designed to last. It's designed to endure. So Peter says, don't lose the most valuable thing you have. It's not gold, it's your faith. But let's put a little fire under it and let's see if it's real. Let's purify that thing. So I just went back through and started, uh, I, I did this week, you know, looking at the smelting process of gold. Okay, When they find it, you know, kind of looks like that. You don't put that on an engagement ring, fellas. All right? Uh, you know, when it's mi- it goes through multiple phases, but when it's mined, okay, it has other elements mixed into it uh, that make it impure. So you heat it up. I've been doing this since 6000 BC. Uh, over 2100 degrees Fahrenheit, about 1064 Celsius is the melting point of gold. And what happens is the impurities will either burn up at that heat, at that temperature, or uh, the elements will separate themselves. They just sort of surface and separate themselves so that you can scoop them off very easily. They become visible. Visible immediately. They just separate from the real thing. It's a fascinating picture that Peter uses to describe faith, which can sometimes collect elements around it that make it, you, you start going, what do I have here? So Peter is saying, faith has impurities too. 
hey, that's something to sit around and talk about at lunch today. What impurities does your faith have? And a little heat will reveal them quickly. So anything that sort of... uh, put you in a position where you might lose something of value, you'll feel it. Be relationships, anything that gives you identity, meaning. It could be religious freedom. It can be rights. A little heat. Like we're beginning to feel in the social, political, and cultural world that we live in here, has I think we've Revealed to us that our faith is a little bit too dependent on America and its future. And we have forgotten that our faith is the most valuable thing we have. And if it's real, it's strong enough to endure anything. Because Peter says it's valuable and it's durable. You can heat it up and it'll be fine. Peter's telling us that. We can't even imagine. What do you mean it'll be fine? Yeah, it'll be fine. Real faith can handle it. Overwhelming thought. So most of the conversations I have are, uh, I, I hear this. I hear, yeah, but I'm worried about my grandkids' future. And I'm a grandfather now, so I get it. But I want you to hear in there what we've been saying this whole series. Ever so subtly, there's the insinuation that faith can't survive in some settings. And when I look down the road and I see what's coming, I go, we're done, we're doomed, we're in for. Faith could never survive that. That's the mentality. It's destroying the church, that mentality, by the way. Peter's gonna show us. It's sort of a backhanded slap to God that there's no way he could produce the kind of faith that could endure what we're in America are about to face. And maybe, maybe this has really challenged me that uh, I shouldn't worry so much about the kind of life that my grandkids are gonna have. What I really need to worry about is will they pass the test of faith when it comes? That's what I should be worried about with myself. Not will they get tested. Oh, please, God, don't test them. No. Will they pass the test is more important than anything in the world. And Peter is saying, oh, yeah, man, the stuff you have is, made of, is better than gold. When you put heat to it, it lasts. It's eternally durable imperishable, indestructible. And if your faith fails, that's what you should worry about. So, so, so hear this. I'm just going to wrap it up right here, but listen to this. Listen, think about this. When, when you discover, Peter is thinking out loud, when you discover that your faith is real, that it's genuine, and your future is ab- absolutely cannot be lost, Your salvation is sure. Wouldn't you rejoice in that? 
Peter's like, oh yeah, that gives you joy. And this is how he closes this baby. Uh, you haven't seen him. I know you haven't seen him. You're going through these trials. You haven't seen him, but you love him. Best definition of a Christian. You just love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. If you were to find out today that your faith was absolutely genuine, do you think you could speak? You think it would just overwhelm you to the point that you couldn't even speak? Because you know you're obtaining the outcome of your faith which is the salvation of your souls. Is there anything greater than that? What an incredible thing. That's what Peter's saying. You want confidence? Endure the suffering. It will give you a joy because you know your faith is real. Persecution and opposition confirm faith in a way that brings unspeakable joy. You could hear it in that pastor's voice. It's not out of the question for us. I'll tell you what the question is. Are you ready for it? Is your faith the most precious thing you have? Or would you say right now, I've got some, I've got some, I got some impure elements in my faith right now that I need to deal with. They're contaminating my faith. Maybe the culture of America is revealing it. If you don't have faith at all, you need it. You need to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ because nothing else is going to matter. You want something more precious than gold and anything you've ever had or ever will have? You put your, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Father, drive home to our hearts that our faith is the most important thing we have. How we live it out. How we endure things that you bring into our life. Opposition. Hatred. We're not responding well. It's revealing some things. Surface them, Lord. And wipe them away. Jesus' name.